All right, so here we are, how to study the Bible, part three. Um, I want to do a bit of a recap. Before I do that, let's have a quick prayer. Father in heaven, I'm really thankful this morning for you and um, just for your spirit, Lord, and the way in which you have been leading us as a community of faith throughout this year, especially as we face these crazy times. And I'm thankful as well, Lord, that uh, you placed on my heart um, a series of sermons on how to study the Bible because in many ways, we've got more time for Bible study now than we've uh, probably ever had in our lives. And um, some of us anyways, others of us are actually more busy than before. Uh, but either way, Lord, I'm just uh, thankful that um, you've given us these tools and these insights to be able to learn how to effectively and faithfully interpret your word. And so as we go through part three, which is the final um, portion of this series, I pray that it would be clear, even though there's quite a bit to cover, I pray that it would uh, nevertheless prove to be an, a, a huge blessing for everyone who listens. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so we are now in part three. And so like I said, what I want to do is I want to take a moment to um, recap where we've been so far. And so what we've seen in part one and part two is number one, that reading or memorizing scripture it's not what gives life. Jesus gives life. Now, this is a very important point that I need to make because that's a statement that can be very easily misunderstood. I am not saying that Jesus and the Bible are in competition with each other, okay? They are not in competition with each other, and that's something that I hope to really clarify today. They are united. The Bible points to Jesus, and Jesus points back to Scripture. It's like this cycle, right? It's this beautiful cycle. And that's really important because even though there is a tendency to where we can read the Bible without being led to Jesus, which is an unfaithful way of using scripture. I've also known people who say, hey, you know what? I know Jesus really well, so I don't need to read my Bible, okay? <laughs> and that is definitely not what Jesus was getting at when he said, I give life, right? Um, they, they work together. They're, part of, they're two parts of a whole. So scripture points to Jesus and Jesus points back to the scripture and then the scripture points to Jesus again and it's this like, it feeds into itself, right? It's this beautiful cycle. Um, but the bottom line, just to recycle or, or, or recap what we've talked about is that if our study of scripture is not leading us to Jesus, we will have lots of theological and doctrinal trivia or knowledge, but we will not have life. Jesus has to be the focal point, right? Um, the second point that we explored is that the words of scripture are not what is inspired. It's the authors that are inspired. The Holy Spirit imbues the author with inspired thoughts. The human author then chooses which words to use based on his culture, his personality, his education, etc. And I'm going to, there's a question that I'm going to um, plug into just in a little bit uh, that tackles this whole idea of the words not being inspired once more because that statement even though ellen white herself says it right ellen white i didn't make that up right ellen white herself says the words are not inspired to the authors who are inspired it's a really uncomfortable statement no matter who it comes from because there's often um we often conflate that with other things that are not being said all right so that might sound a little bit confusing but basically i'm going to clarify it that's the point <laughs> Um, finally, um, by considering the context, right? So these human authors are, are using their human education, their content, um, their, their setting, their personality, all of that is at play when they're writing scripture. And so what we need to do is we need to consider the context of scripture's words. And in doing so, we explore the human element of the text. And that then leads us to make sound applications in our modern day. And I hope that despite how... Um, 
heavy some of this might be that you you understand that that is the bottom line okay the bottom line when we say that the words aren't inspired the bottom line is that there is a human element in choosing the words that go into scripture and what this means is the words have a context they have a particular meaning uh, you can't just pull a text and make it say what you want it to say right the text has a meaning that the author intended to convey and we have to discover that meaning before we apply it. That's really the bottom line. But again, I'm gonna clarify that in a little bit. Um, so here's the first question that um, is gonna help us to clarify that. And the question is this, if the words are not inspired, are they not authoritative? This is a brilliant question, absolutely excellent. And I'm glad I get the chance to answer this question because I'm sure a lot of you are asking it. <laughs> um, and I think that this is really gonna help clarify things really well. So there is this idea, you know, when we talk about the words of scripture not being inspired, that we, we, we kind of hear something being said in that statement that is not being said. So let me clarify this, all right? Bottom line, so that no one is confused, every word of scripture is profitable, reliable, and authoritative, right? Every single word. This is why scripture is our only rule of faith and practice, okay? And you have to remember, like, you know, I mean, I'm quoting Ellen White when I say that it's not the words that are inspired, it's the authors. But you have to remember that Ellen White was huge on the reliability and, and um, infallibility of Scripture. All right. So you have to understand, like, this isn't coming from someone who's trying to tear Scripture down, but from someone who dedicated their life to building Scripture up. Okay, so whatever's being said there, it's definitely not, we're, I'm definitely not suggesting, and Ellen White's definitely not suggesting that scripture is somehow unreliable or unauthoritative. Quite the contrary. Um, so here, let, let's, let's clarify that now, and I'll make this really simple on some slides. Um, this is what some people hear. The words are not inspired equals the words are not authoritative. That is false. That is not <laughs> what I am saying. It's definitely not what Ellen White was implying. Um, some people might hear the words are not inspired equals they're not reliable. This is also false. This is not the point that I am getting at. Or we might hear that the words are not inspired, so they're not infallible. Um, now, of course, this is a little bit trickier because, like I said, there are grammatical errors in Scripture, you know, punctuations and um, spelling errors and things like that. However, we still believe that Scripture is infallible in the message that it presents. It's an infallible revelation of God's character and His will. And so regardless of whether there might be some grammatical errors here and there, the message is 100% infallible. So this is not the same thing. Not inspired is not the same thing as not infallible. So none of those are the point that uh, I've been getting at in trying to unravel this idea and wrestle with this idea. When Ellen White says that the words are not inspired, her point is that there is a human element to the text. And I hope that you can capture the difference there. It's, there's a human element to the text. It's not dictated from heaven, right? There is a divine and human cooperation involved in writing the text. So all Ellen White is saying, and it's essentially all I am saying, is that when Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Moses, you know, Daniel, when they wrote the Bible, God did not possess them and use them as a pen to write word for word, verbally, mechanically dictated exactly what he wanted in on the page, right? That's not how it works. But that God inspired the author's thoughts and then the author 
then said, okay, well, what is the best way for me to communicate what God is saying here? And of course, God was still involved in that process. Like we saw, Luke researched before he wrote the book of Luke, right? This is how the book of Luke opens up. I've gone around, I've done my research, I've investigated, and I've written an orderly account for you, right? So Luke wasn't in a room somewhere with his eyes rolling in the back of his head in a trance, just writing whatever God told him to write. Luke was researching, Luke was exploring. But we believe that the Holy Spirit led Luke throughout that journey of researching and exploring, and it led him to pick the best words that he could pick, but that they're not dictated, okay? And so what this means is, very simply, very plainly, there is a human element to the text, okay? Um, so this doesn't remove one ounce of Scripture's authority, reliability, or power. Not one. It simply emphasizes that the Bible is a divine human cooperation. So what it does is it makes possible a continued divine human cooperation in studying the text. God is not dictating. God is inviting us to reason. And that is the bottom line, right? God wants you to come to the Bible to use your reasoning powers united with his spirit, right? That cooperation. And together you can understand his will for your life. All right. Now, when we say we're not inspired, here's what I am saying. Here's what Ellen White is saying. <laughs> not inspired equals not dictated, right? The, the words, God didn't say, you know, hey, put the the before that letter, not after it, or put, you know, um, the she before that word. Not, it didn't work that way, right? God did not dictate the text. Um, also, not inspired also simply means it's not controlled, right? The process of recording scripture is not controlled. And I mean, thankfully so, because if it was, we would be in a world of hurt today because there's a lot of Greek and Hebrew words that have multiple meanings. And most of the time, you know, translators of scripture are trying to figure out like, which is the best meaning to translate this? Because we don't really fully know exactly what meaning the author intended, even after all the study, sometimes it's dubious. And so it's, it's a good thing that God wasn't controlling the writing of the text with every specific word, because then you and I would, we would have to learn Greek and Hebrew in order to accurately read the Bible in the same way that, uh, for example, in Islam, if you read a English version of the Quran, a Muslim will tell you that you didn't really read the Quran. You read a translation of the Quran, right? And so there's this belief in Islam that Allah dictated the Quran to Muhammad, word for word, it was dictated. And so if you really want to understand the Quran, you must read it in the original Arabic. And the problem is nobody speaks the original Arabic anymore because it's an ancient version of Arabic that only the Islamic scholars understand. Um, and so most people that I've spoken to who are Muslim, who don't understand it, they have to rely on their religious leaders to tell them what the text means. Um, and they're not allowed to disagree either. And so if scripture worked this way, we'd be in a world of hurt because none of our English translations would be actually reliable for understanding God's character. But this is not how scripture works. God did not dictate the words that go on the text, which means that as they're translated, even though they may not always fully capture what every single word means, the message is still intact no matter what language you put it into. And this means God can communicate with people anywhere, anytime, any culture. He can communicate his heart and his will perfectly. Um, so again, not inspired simply means that the text has a divine element and it also has a human element. They work together. Uh, so let me 
sort of look at it this way here on the left hand side you got holy spirit who dictates the, who, who gives the words to the author so what you end up with is a dictated um text and on the right you have holy spirit who gives the thoughts to the author and then the author uses his own words so on the dictated portion if you sort of go with that model what you end up with is that the the bible itself the bible that you hold in your hands the bible that you're reading is a static inflexible error-free no context no personality book that leads to fanaticism bottom line right it leads to fanaticism um static and inflexible meaning you take the text and you just apply it without any consideration of any context because there is no context there is no personality the words just came straight from heaven and just don't even think about it. Just do what they say, right? And so obviously that leads to fanaticism. I'll give you guys an example. In Ellen White's day, there was this really, um, two, two movements that were really bizarre. Um, one of them was a group of people who were crawling on their knees and sucking their thumbs during church. Now this is ridiculous, right? This is like beyond weird, um, but it serves the point. Uh, so they were crawling around on their knees and sucking their thumbs and their argument was Jesus said, if you're gonna enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a child. Now, if you're watching this, I can, I can, even though I'm not seeing your face, I can see you laughing, okay? It's like, that's not the point, right? That's not the point that Jesus is making. But even though it's an extreme scenario, it's a scenario that captures what happens when we read a text without a context, this is the sort of stuff that it leads to. It can lead to these fanatical applications. Another one that was floating around in Ellen White's day was that shaving was the God of this age, right? And so there was this belief that if you shaved, it was a sin, that all men should have a beard, and that if you did not have a beard, that you were being sinful. Um, and so they referred to shaving as the modern God of fashion and all these different things. And that we were, you know, and, and their argument was the Bible says that God has numbered every hair in our heads. So who can be so arrogant as to cut that, which God has numbered, right? That was the argument. And it's like, okay, that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that God cares about us, right? That's the point of the text. The point of the text is not don't shave, okay? So these are examples of what happens. They're fanatical and they're really extreme and we don't really see this kind of stuff happening today, but it does still happen in different ways, okay? Sometimes in more subtle, less dramatic ways. But basically the bottom line is if the words are static and inflexible, if they have no context, if they have no personality, then they don't have an intended meaning. And I can take the text and I can rip it and fanatically make it say whatever I want it to say. Okay, that's the problem with the dictation view. Whereas when we understand that the Holy Spirit gave the authors thoughts and then they use their own words to express those thoughts, we understand that those words are dynamic. They're not static, right? Static is like frozen, dynamic is in movement. Um, they're not inflexible, they're in motion. So these are kind of synonymous, meaning that the story of scripture is an unfolding, progressively unfolding story, okay? There is a movement in the text and we have to follow that movement if we wanna arrive at the conclusion God wants us to arrive at. So a perfect example um, that I've mentioned already in the series is the example of slavery, right? You're not gonna find a verse in the Bible that rejects slavery. To the contrary, you will find verses that seem to accommodate it. And so in the, um, in, in, in the American South, there was very strong movement defending the institution of slavery in the American South 
using the Bible. And they were actually the conservatives of the day, right? They were defending the institution of slavery that is in scripture. Um, and interestingly enough, they had all the proof texts for it. They could quote you one, lots of texts in Leviticus and in the writings of Paul, and they could build a wall of proof texts to show you, actually, God is okay with slavery. But what they failed to do was they failed to recognize that those verses were part of a story that is in motion, and that ultimately the motion of Scripture is God wanting to restore the universe back to its original design of love. And if we are headed toward that final restoration, where all things are back to the design of love, slavery doesn't fit. It doesn't matter how many proof texts you have to defend slavery, it doesn't fit the motion of the text. So I hope that makes sense. Um, also imperfect. Now, again, what I mean here is, you know, people, people have this assumption that scripture is error-free, um, so it has no grammatical errors and it has no spelling errors because it came straight from heaven and God doesn't make mistakes. And so what this does is it, it gives the skeptics a field day because there are spelling errors and, and things like that, um, grammatical errors in the text. And so it gives them a field day to attack the reliability of scripture um, because of these things. And like, oh, well, you know, your God must learn how to spell and use punctuation properly, right? But the bottom line is this isn't how scripture works. Because it was written by human beings, you are going to find grammatical errors in there. But the point is that it doesn't impact the story of scripture. The revelation God wants to give us is still infallible. Um, and then finally, when we understand that it's words and it's cultural, there's culture involved, there's personality involved. And this then, when we decipher that, helps us to find a balanced application of the text. And that is the ultimate aim that we're aiming for here is how can we read the Bible in a way that when we apply it to our lives, we apply it in a way that is balanced, the way God, in, God intended it to be applied, rather than um, using these you know, modern theories of verbal dictation and all this stuff to come up with applications that the text doesn't intend to, to lead us toward. Um, now here is, I just wanna read these quotes from Ellen White as I wrap up this, this question, and I hope this has made sense. Um, but I think this quote from Ellen White really helps to clarify what's going on here. So here we go. Um, I've read this already, but let's read it again. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. All right. And then she goes on and says, the divine mind is diffused, right? Now that now the author of scripture, let's just say Paul, right? He's got the thoughts of God in his mind now. And now he can diffuse the mind of God by choosing the words that he uses to express those thoughts that are in his mind that God has revealed to him. And here's what happens. Um, she goes on to say, the divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. So there's the two, right? Uh, Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. All right, so I hope that makes sense. It's the combination of the two. The utterances of man are ultimately the word of God, even if the words, plural, are the man's. So it's holding those two in tension. It's a divine plus human document. Um, that's really what we're aiming at here. And let me just repeat the central point because I want this, because this is the last sermon in this series, I want this to be as clear as painfully possible. The central point in all of this is that a proper balanced understanding of scripture requires us as students to explore the human element of the text, the culture, the context, and the intent of the original author in order to make sound applications today. 
Now, a good example of this is American versus Hebrew understanding of judgment, right? Like we read about the judgment in the Bible. And if you don't contextualize the meaning of judgment in scripture to what the authors were thinking when they wrote about judgment, you can develop really nasty pictures that make God really scary. So for example, in an American or Western legal system, uh, if you stand before a judge, the judge is impartial, right? The judge hears the case. And if you want to be defended, you need to hire a lawyer who stands in your place and argues for you, right? So the judge is not there to help you. The judge is there to pronounce a sentence, but the lawyer is there to help you. And, and so if you want to have a chance at winning the case, uh, you can try representing yourself, which is not, you know, is not uh, recommended, but you can also hire a lawyer who represents you, who knows all the legal language and who knows how to get you off the hook, basically. Now, this is not how judgment worked in Hebrew culture. In Hebrew culture, the judge and the lawyer were the same person, which means that in Hebrew culture, the judge's job was to defend you. Now, you have to ask yourself this question as you're exploring the topic of judgment in scripture. If the judge's job is to defend you, if the judge and the lawyer are the same person, how can you lose that case, you know? unless you completely reject what the judge slash lawyer is doing for you, there's no way you can lose that case if you put your faith in that judge slash lawyer. And so and a perfect example is like Jesus saying, hey, the father does not judge himself. He has committed all judgment to the son, right? Jesus says this. And then in first John, we read, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus Christ is both the judge, God has committed all judgment to him, and the advocate, right? The lawyer, basically, right? It's not exactly, but you know, it's, it's a good carryover. And so Jesus is the, the advocate and the judge. He, he is on the bench, but he's also on the ground defending you. It's both at the same time. And this is the Hebraic understanding. And so if you don't have that understanding and you read Western, American, <laughs> European judgment frameworks into the biblical story of judgment, you're going to misunderstand the biblical story of judgment. But if you explore the context and you discover, oh, wait a minute, in Hebrew culture, the judge and the lawyer was the same person. Jesus is our advocate and our judge. All of a sudden, the judgment becomes something beautiful, something exciting, something worth celebrating a message that doesn't freak us out or scare us, but a message that gives us hope that even in the, even in the phase of judgment, God is wanting to be with us, wanting to defend us, wanting to do everything possible to save as many as possible. And so what this does is it switches our perspective of God. In the Western view of judgment, God looks like the guy who's trying to keep people out of heaven. Whereas in the Hebrew view of judgment, God looks like the guy who's trying to get as many people in, right? It's a completely different picture. Let me move on um, as well. Final point here. Many make the mistake of reading a text and because it reminds them of something or sounds like something, they assume that that's what it's talking about. And this is the danger, right? Or they connect texts with similar language when the context is talking about something else. Now I've got here in brackets, lost coin example, because I heard a sermon ages ago 
And the first time I heard it, I thought it was amazing. And I was like, oh, wow, how did I never see that before? And the preacher was saying that in the parable of the lost coin, um, the woman, it says, had 10 coins and she lost one and she swept the house until she found it, right? Um, and at the end of the sermon, the preacher makes the point that the lost coin represents the Sabbath, that there are 10 commandments, just like there are 10 coins, and that one commandment has been lost, just like the Sabbath has been lost through history, and that now the Sabbath has been recovered. And I remember hearing this and thinking, wow, that is so cool. I never knew that before. How did he get this? What an amazing preacher. Until I read the text in its context and realized Jesus is not talking about the Sabbath or the law at all. The point of the parable is that you are the lost coin, right? That earth is the lost coin, that God will do anything to save his people. That's the point of the parable. It's got nothing to do with the Sabbath. But what the preacher did was he took, oh, there's 10 commandments, there's 10 coins, and he linked them, even though the text doesn't link them. There's a lost commandment that people have forgotten through history, and there's a lost coin, and he linked them, even though the text doesn't link them. And so in the end, even though in some ways it's it's you know it's a little harmless in some sense but at the same time you you are giving people um a license to do with the bible whatever they want to do with it and this is not a faithful application of scripture the faithful application of scripture is to first discover what is the intended point of the text and then i can apply it and so that sermon would have been much more faithful to scripture if the central point was that you are the lost coin for whom God will do anything to redeem, right? Okay, context protects us from senseless theology and restrictive revelation. God's revelation is preserved at all times and places. Now I already explained this, you know, um, dictated inspiration of its is in Islam, of uh, Calvinism as well, which is a branch of Christianity. Um, I don't, I'm not gonna explore that anymore because I think I've made my point there. But if you have any more questions about this, um, feel free to feel free to let me know. Thought inspiration in scripture equals human plus divine collaboration to bring to us the authoritative, unfailing word of God. And so because it's not dictated, it can be translated into any language. And not just translated into any language, it can be translated into any generation, right? You can give me any legitimate translation of the Bible. There are some translations that are terrible. I'm not gonna, you know, uh, but they're not usually legitimate translations. They're, they're usually very questionable. But you give me any legitimate translation of the Bible and I will teach you every single belief of the Adventist church. I don't have to depend on one translation that was translated 300 years ago. I can use any of them because the word of God is preserved across time, across culture, across generation, because his word is not dependent on specific words being, you know, retained in the text. His word is holistic, right? There is a narrative that's being shared in scripture that you cannot bury, um, even if a few words are translated differently here and there. Um, and so again, this is different from the dictated view of Islam, where it's like once you've translated the, the Quran, it's no longer really the Quran, right? Uh, so the thought inspiration of scripture, the human plus divine element gives us freedom to be able to discover, hey, um, you could have been um, uh, an, an, an Englishman in uh, you know the 1500s, reading the King James Version, or you could be a Tongan today on an island reading the Tongan Version, or you can be uh, a Puerto Rican like myself reading the Spanish Version, it, and they all communicate the Word of God infallibly. Um, okay, 
So we can wrestle with it, question, dig, explore, contextualize, translate, and in all of this, the infallible revelation of God is preserved. That's the beautiful thing. So I hope you fully, you know, I took a while to answer that question because I wanted to that to be crystal clear. The words not being inspired is, does not mean in any way, shape, or form that they're not authoritative, right? The words being inspired simply means that there is a human element, or the words not being inspired, rather, simply means that there is a human element to the text that needs to be understood in order to properly apply it. Um, if the words, here's the second question, um, if the words are not inspired, then why do we try and translate the Bible accurately? Again, um, I'm just uh, fly through this one because I think I already answered this, but again, the words matter, okay? Words not being inspired does not mean words don't matter. The words matter, all right? Because through the words, we can discern the thoughts of God. The concern of Jesus is that the Pharisees stopped at the letter, right? And because of this, they exaggerated the letter to the point that they lost sight of the spirit behind the letter. They missed the main point of the Bible by making the Bible itself into an idol. And so instead of letting the Bible lead them to Jesus, they stopped at the words and then built these fences around the words and became very rigid with it. That's the point that Jesus is combating. He's not, he's not protesting the words of Scripture so much as he's protesting the way the Pharisees were treating the words of Scripture. All right? Um, so the words do matter, and I want to encourage you, okay? Memorize the Bible, all right? Commit the verses to heart, but go deep, okay? Explore the context for an ac accurate application of the text. Um, and when you do this, you're going to avoid fanatical or imbalanced applications that will in turn lead you toward a faith expression that's actually attractive and, and, and beautiful rather than damaging and inflexible. Um, now, last question. Um, can't a person use context to explain away what a text is plainly saying? Uh, shouldn't we just use a plain reading approach? Um, now, there's two answers to this question. The first answer is it depends on what you mean by the plain reading of the text. All right, Plain reading is no excuse for tyrannical reading. And most of the time, people conflate the two. They think a plain reading is a tyrannical reading. Now, what do I mean by a tyrannical reading? I shared this example in part two of the sermon series where I said I've had people say to me, that First uh, Timothy says that a woman should be silent in the church and she should not speak. Therefore, Ellen White is a false prophet. And if you try and explain to them how that's not the context of what Paul was saying, they will accuse you of explaining away the plain reading of the word of God because it says it plainly and you shouldn't reason and you shouldn't try and explain it. You just need to obey it and that's the bottom line. And so in conservative churches like, like ours, you know, Adventists are generally conservative people, um, that kind of mentality seems appealing, right? It seems appealing because we want to obey God. You know, we don't want to make excuses or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Explain away what God is saying to us. We, we want to be authentic. We want to follow his, his guidance um, without, you know, sort of tiptoeing around it. And so that kind of mentality... Um, almost seems appealing. But the point is that this is not a plain reading of the text, right? This is what we would call a tyrannical reading of the text. Tyrannical meaning you're not allowed to question, you're not allowed to wrestle, you're not allowed to explore, you're not allowed to look at other verses, to look at context. None of that is allowed. You just have to take it at face value and just obey it. And anything short of that is disobedience. Um, the problem with this is nobody on the face of the earth actually does that. Even the most rigid um, verbal dictationist people 
do not do that. They do it with verses where they can, but you know, if you go to the Old Testament and it says to stone someone for um, <laughs> for, for for breaking the Sabbath, or 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 if it says you know um, a woman who's in her menstrual cycle um, is unclean and has to has to leave the camp and has to basically be quarantined, right? Like no one does that today. And you say, well, why? Why don't you do it? Why, why don't you kill someone who's working on the Sabbath when the text says it? Then the explanations will come out. Oh, well, you know, that was the old covenant and we're in the new covenant now and things have changed. And, you know, the women's menstrual cycle, that's the same thing. You know, things have, the story has progressed and that's how God was dealing with it back then, but it was a metaphor. So basically they start explaining it away, right? Um, and so... But in reality, they're not explaining it away. What they're doing is they're reasoning with the text. And that's the thing. Like a plain reading of the Bible is a reading that is holistic, where you reason with the text and you apply it in balance with other texts and with the overall story of Scripture. Um, and so what this means then is that anytime you read the Bible, you're, you are reading it without one, you know, you are reading it at face value, but you are allowing Scripture itself to balance itself out with other verses, with the context, with different things that are happening. Um, and so plain reading is not the same as tyrannical reading. So to the question, can a person use context to explain away what a text is plainly saying? Shouldn't we just use a plain reading approach? I would answer that it depends what you mean by plain reading. If by plain re reading you mean tyrannical, then you'll never be able to do that faithfully because you're only going to be able to do it with the verses that you deem um, appropriate to do it with and then you'll ignore it with other verses because it's not a useful approach it's not a faithful approach but if by plain reading you mean we are reading the bible holistically we are exploring the story of scripture and trying to find the balance within scripture itself then yes that is what we should do and when we do that we find that a lot of these verses that seem really rigid at face value actually smooth themselves out into something quite reasonable um, now, it is true that some do try and use context to explain away certain themes in Scripture. That's true. I've heard it. You've heard it. It does happen. You know, someone will say, oh, well, the context says, you know, blah, 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 and therefore we don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore. You know, like, you, you'll find that. Um, and so this is why um, context is not the only thing that we need in order to properly interpret Scripture. We need something more, and that's what I want today's focus to be on. What is the something more that enables us to properly interpret Scripture? So we've got context, but there's one more element, all right? Context and, and this new element that I want to explore today. Now, as I do that, if you're sitting there with your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of John chapter 5. Um, we've been in John chapter 5 for this entire series. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read it in its totality. Um, I'm going to skip verse 44 um, simply because it, you know, makes some points that I'm not going to comment on, although it would be good to comment on them. But you can go ahead and read it on your own. Uh, but it's just for today's sermon, I, I want to keep this, the flow of thought smooth. So I'll just skip that, that one verse. Um, but we're going to read this and then I'm going to make a final... Um, thoughts, final comments on what Jesus is dealing with here with the Pharisees and how it applies to us today. All right, so John chapter 5, I'm going to read it here. You search, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, this is John chapter 5, verses 39 uh, through 47. And we've explored these texts quite a bit already in, in you know, our sermon series throughout. And we've seen that Jesus is saying some very radical things in these texts. First, Jesus is suggesting that life is found in him, not scriptures. And we've explored that already. He's not discarding the scriptures. He's elevating them as the means through which God points humanity to himself. Right? Um, so Jesus is clear that the scriptures point to him. Second, and I'm just looking at my notes here, Jesus is suggesting that despite having memorized the Old Testament, the Pharisees didn't have the love of God in them. So what did they have in them? They had a lot of theological and doctrinal knowledge in them, but it was dry, dead, and loveless. And we run the same risk of doing that ourselves in our modern day in the Adventist church. We love the Bible. We run the risk of having so much theological and doctrinal knowledge that we're actually dead, dry, and loveless. So what this suggests to us today is that there is a way of reading the Bible that leads to life and that there is a way of reading the same Bible that leads to death. And the difference is this. Does your reading of the Bible lead you to Jesus so that you can be filled with God's love? Because if it doesn't, your reading of the Bible is no different to your reading of any other book. The third point that we see in these texts is that Jesus affirms that all of Scripture is about him. He declares that Moses wrote about him, even though Moses never mentioned him. It's all about him. And notice what Jesus says, right? I'm going to just going to go back here to this text. Um, at the bottom, what Jesus says there, he says, If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, here is an evidence within this conversation Jesus is having with the Pharisees that the Jesus and the Bible are both in unison, all right? Jesus, the Bible points to Jesus, but... At the same time, Jesus points back to Scripture because he's telling the Pharisees, you if you believe Moses' writings, you will believe me, right? So this it's going both ways. He's declaring that Scripture points to him, but he's also declaring that if you really believe Scripture, if then if you believe in him and you believe in Scripture, then this like this cycle that feeds into itself. And so Jesus is not saying don't read Scripture, ignore Scripture. Jesus is saying, if you really believe the scriptures, you'll believe me, right? And so he's pointing people back to scripture, but also showing that scripture points to him, which is absolutely brilliant. But there is something else that's happening in this text that I want to point out, something that is radical and uncomfortable, all right? Notice what Jesus says. He says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. In other words, when the, when, when the Pharisees read the Bible, they interpreted everything they read through Moses. Now, Moses is a metaphor as well for the law. And so Moses then was like a set of glasses that they wore when they were reading the Bible. Now, if you remember from the first sermon, I mentioned how we all have a different set of glasses we wear when we read the text our biases right and so i might have a pair of glasses that are tinted blue and the bible says the paper is white and i'll read the paper is blue 
and someone else might have yellow tinted glasses and they'll read the papers yellow. And then I go start the church of the blue paper and that other person goes starts the church of the yellow paper, um, even though the paper is white, right? And so we all bring these glasses to the text. There are our biases, our traumas, um, sorry about that, different things that um, play into that. And so what the Pharisees are doing is that they are reading scripture through Moses, right? Through the law. And so scripture for them points to Moses and then it feeds into itself. Moses becomes the lens. The law becomes the lens through which the Pharisees interpret scripture. And this was the foundation of Pharisaical theology. In, in Jesus' day, there were beliefs. For example, there was a belief that if everyone kept the law perfectly for one day, the Messiah would come, right? This is a law-centered interpretation of scripture. The Pharisees also believed that if everyone kept the law of God, that God would restore to Israel national independence, right? That they would get rid of the Romans and they would restore the throne of David and the Israelites would be free from oppression and tyranny of these other empires, these pagan empires. And it was all rooted in the law, right? It's like if we want to get to the place where God blesses us with national independence, we have to be faithful to the law. Everything was about the law. And it was so law-centric that when Jesus came along and he rejected their traditions and he rejected their law-centric perspectives and he hung out with sinners and with tax collectors and prostitutes, the Pharisees thought to themselves, there's no way he can be from God. There's no way this guy can be the son of God because if he was, he wouldn't hang out with those people and he wouldn't do those things that they believed were sinful. And so what the Pharisees had done was Moses and the law became the lens through which they understood scripture, they, through which they understood God, the way God thinks about us, the way God relates to us. All of it was the law. So the law was the glasses that the, the Pharisees were wearing. And, and so this is the bottom point that the Pharisaical reading of scripture points to Moses, not Jesus, even though Moses wrote about Jesus and not himself. I want to say that again because that's really, really key. The Pharisaical reading of Scripture points to Moses, not Jesus, even though Moses wrote about Jesus and not himself. And so this was the tragedy of the Pharisees. And so Jesus says to them, look, the one in whom you've put your hope, he's going to accuse you, right? He's going to accuse you. And, and what did Jesus mean by this? If you can picture, you know, like a Pharisee standing in a courtroom, you know, and, and, and Moses walks in and the Pharisee thinks, oh, Moses is going to defend me because I've done everything Moses said to do. And Moses turns around and says, actually, um, I accuse you. You're not faithful uh, to scripture and you're not faithful to God, right? This is the point that Jesus is making. Like, I don't have to condemn you because Moses himself condemns you because you're misreading him, you're misapplying him, you're misunderstanding him. Um, now, it's a very uncomfortable idea, but here's the point that Jesus is making. You might have memorized the book, but you missed the author. You might have memorized the book, but you missed the author. And you can do everything the book says to do and miss the point that the book is there to draw you to the author. And if you miss the author, then you've missed life. And this is the tragedy of the Pharisee. So I wanna explore this question, unravel it for the next few minutes before we close. And it's this, why did the Pharisees miss Jesus? 
right? Why did the Pharisees miss Jesus? We've already explored this in the previous sermon. We explored how the Pharisees had a very dictated view of scripture that led them to focus on the words instead of what the words were pointing to. But I wanna get a little bit more practical here today and, and talk about the other element that the Pharisees missed. And it's this, because Moses in scripture represents the old covenant, he represents the law, the Pharisees had put their hopes in the law. They had a law lens, right, or glasses. I'm using the phrase lens and glasses interchangeably here. So the Pharisees were reading the Bible with these law glasses. And as they read the Bible with these law glasses, all they saw was law. They didn't see Jesus. They just saw rules and regulations. So Moses wrote about Jesus, but they couldn't see it because all they could see was law. It's all they were looking for. And they read the Bible with these law glasses and everything for the Pharisees was about the law. They were the teachers of the law. Everything was about the law. Um, now, here's the thing. The same thing happens today. The lens, the glasses that you use to read the Bible, the glasses that you use, the tint that they have on them are ultimately going to determine what you take out of scripture. And the point that I want to make today is that even if you explore the context of a text, if you have the wrong glasses on, if you have the wrong lens, the context is only going to get you so far. With the wrong lens, you're still going to miss the point of scripture, right? So what are some common lenses that I have seen throughout the years? I've been in church all my life and I've used some of these lenses myself, right? Here's, here's um, example, rules glasses, all right? So this is, this is probably the most popular one, and I've used it, many people have used it, and this is what the Pharisees were using, right? The rules glasses, the rules lens. And with this lens, with this set of glasses, what you do is that you come to picture God as this divine dictator with a set of rules and expectations that you had better comply with or else, right? And when you have this view, every time you read the Bible and every time you share the Bible, that's what you are getting out of scripture. And the tragedy here is that people who, who have this um, perspective on scripture, they're full of scripture, but they tend to be cold, dry, formal, loveless. And, you know, all through my, you know, like I said, I've been, I've been, I've been in Adventist all my life. So I've, I've seen this, these glasses at play. I've used them myself. And generally, um, what happens is when you're using rules glasses to read the Bible, you're never, ever, ever happy with a sermon unless the sermon gives you 10 new things you're supposed to do and not do. And it's like, you j all I want is rules. Don't talk about the love of God. I'm sick of that. Just give me more rules to keep. <laughs> and that's the only thing that makes these folk happy, you know, so... Um, if you've ever been disappointed with the lack of rules in my sermons, maybe this is why, right? You're using these rules glasses. Now, are there rules in scripture? Yes. Does God have standards that we are to obey? Yes. But are those the lenses through which we should read the Bible? No, right? And that's the point. I'm not saying there's no rules in scripture. I'm saying that rules or the law is not the lens through which we should read the Bible. And when we read the Bible through this lens, we become obsessed with it. You know? 
um, prosperity glasses. Now, this doesn't happen too much in the Adventist church, but um, I have many non-Adventist friends in other churches, and they read the Bible, and all they see is prosperity everywhere. And all they see is, oh, you trust God, and you're going to have money, and you're going to have a beautiful wife, and, you know, the, 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 the floodgates of heaven are going to open, and you're not going to have any problems. And it's like, ah, uh, it doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work that way. But if you read the Bible with the belief that God's in heaven as a genie who's just dishing out blessings on people who are, are, are pleasing to him, then every time you read the Bible, all you're going to see is prosperity. And it's, it's an unfaithful way of reading scripture because scripture isn't just, there are promises of prosperity in scripture, but there's also promises of lamentation, right? So what do you do when everything in your world falls apart? And there is no, and I've met people like this who have lost their faith in God because they're not prospering. And it's like, well, scripture does promise that God will take care of us, but it also promises trials and tribulations and lamentation. And we have to weigh the two up together, right? So moving on, judgment glasses, right? So these are the people who love the old school fire and brimstone sermon where the preacher stands in front of the audience and tells everyone what they're doing wrong with no hair on his tongue. We love it, right? <laughs> so this is the, the judgment glasses, right? Is there judgment in scripture? Yes. But is it the means through which we should interpret scripture? No. Um, but when we interpret scripture primarily through a picture of God as a judge, and generally speaking, as I mentioned earlier, we're doing it through a picture of God as a Western judge, uh, we develop this almost this pathology for the doom and the gloom and the fire and the brimstone. And, you know, we want the preacher to stand up there and just call people out and throw stones. And it's like, we're not happy unless that's what's going on in church, you know. Um, it's not... The way scripture is meant to be read apocalyptic glasses you're going to see a lot of this nowadays especially with this coronavirus thing floating around the apocalyptic glasses are the glasses that go to scripture looking for every conspiracy and everything the devil is up to and every terrible thing that's happening and anything that happens in the news you go to daniel and revelation and try and find you know there's people now floating around saying oh the coronavirus is predicted in revelation you know and it happens all the time with every new thing that happens in the geopolitical world there's someone who's going with their apocalyptic glasses to scripture and essentially you end up as john bradshaw says as people who are more focused on the coming crisis than the coming Christ. Now, is there an apocalypse in Scripture? Absolutely, right? There is an apocalyptic context in Scripture. That's what Daniel and Revelation are all about. Is that the lens through which you should read Scripture? No. Um, national glasses. This one is very popular where I've come from, from America. <laughs> this is the belief that God has blessed the nation of America and that the nation of America is God's modern-day Israel. Um, God has blessed the nation of America. It's not the modern day Israel. But this is, you know, again, the national glasses is bigger than this. The national glasses is the belief that there is a particular group of people on whom God pours out his blessing. And those people are then seen as elite or superior to others. And so, for example, um, the Jews believed this in Jesus' day, that they were God's specially chosen nation and that God only cared about their salvation. The Gentiles don't matter. And many Orthodox Jews still believe that to this day, right? The Gentiles are already lost. They have no hope. But the children of Abraham, they, they, they will be saved. 
Um, and we see this happen in nations as well, where, you know, it's, it happens in America, where Americans, you know, will read the Bible believing that all the promises there is about them, right? Um, and sometimes we can do this within the church, where we look at and we say, oh, um, the entire Bible was written for Adventists, and it's all about us, you know? <laughs> Um, but this is not the case. Now, does God have a people? Does God have a remnant? Yes. Is that the lens through which you should read the totality of Scripture? No. So, the Bible then has its own glasses, right? It has its own set of glasses, and these are the glasses that we ought to use when we're reading the text. Now, what are those glasses? I want to go to another story in Scripture before we come back to Jesus and the Pharisees. This is found in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 25. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm just going to uh, explain it. So Jesus is, after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emos. Now, most of you have heard the story. He's on the road to Emos. And as he's on the road to Emos, he, he, he runs into these guys who are on that road as well. And they're talking about all the things that have been happening in Jerusalem and how Jesus was killed. And he asked them, what's going on? You know, he, he pretends that he doesn't know what's happening. And so they say, oh, how can you not know what's happening? And they explain and they're disappointed and he was a prophet of God and we thought that he was the one and, you know, and now he was murdered by our own leaders and, you know, they were sad, they were despondent. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you people are so slow to learn. Like, didn't you know this was actually meant to happen? Like, have you actually read the prophecies in the Old Testament? And so this is what the text then says. It says in verse 27 that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, I want you to let that sink in. Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And here's the amazing thing. After Jesus leaves and these men realize that it was Jesus that they were with, they look at each other and they say something really interesting. They say, didn't our hearts burn within us as he was explaining the Bible to us? Our hearts were burning within us. Now, this is an interesting phrase because it's, it's almost as if it's never happened before, despite the fact that they grew up in Jewish homes and they had been taught the law since they were children and they were familiar with the Old Testament and they, they were familiar with the theological paradigms of the day because they said they thought Jesus was going to set them free from the Romans, right? This was the theological paradigm of the day. These were not pagans, right? These were not people with zero scriptural knowledge. These were people who had been in the Bible their whole lives. And yet when Jesus explained the Bible with him at the center, he, they're like, wow, our hearts burned within us. Something happened inside. Something brought us to life. And this is the point that Jesus is making. And this is the point that Jesus says to the Pharisees when he says to them that these are they which testify of me. Speaking of the scriptures, right? These are they which testify of me. What does this mean? It means that the Bible intends to be understood through the lens of Jesus. The Bible intends to be understood through Jesus' glasses, all right? Here, here they go, the, the Jesus' glasses, all right, guys? I'll take them off because there's a lot of glare. But this is how the Bible intends to be understood. Jesus is the lens through which we read Scripture, right? Now, let me broaden that so that we can all sort of follow it well. Um, well, first, let me... I've shared this quote with you guys before. It's a brilliant quote. It's worth repeating at this juncture. 
Ellen White, Gospel Workers, page 315, the sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. Notice what she says there. Jesus' atonement is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. The mark of the beast, the investigated judgment, the Sabbath, the health message, the state of the dead, all of it clusters around this one great truth, Jesus, right? Now she goes on to say, in order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth in the word of God, not some truths, every truth in the word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, she wants to make this painfully clear, dummy proof, everything from cover to cover must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. Jesus is the lens, not the law, not prophecy, not prosperity, not rules, not you know apocalypticism, Jesus is the lens through which we must read all of Scripture. So, I refer to this personally, and maybe this is helpful for you guys, or you can switch it up to what works for you. I refer to this as the redemptive lens of Scripture, right? The Jesus glasses, the redemptive lens of Scripture. Jesus, the plan of salvation, the atonement, right? This is what we see Ellen White describing in Gospel Workers, the great sacrifice of Christ, Jesus uplifted on the cross, right? So Jesus, the plan of salvation, the atonement, all of that together forms the set of glasses that I, I call the redemptive lens, right? Or the redemptive glasses. And so what we do when we read the Bible with these glasses on, right? The Bible has its own glasses. It's saying, I want you to read me like this, <laughs> And those glasses are the redemptive glasses. When we read the Bible with this lens, what we find is Jesus and what we find is life. And that's the beauty of it, guys. That's the beauty of it, that when you open the Bible, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, when you open the Bible and you look at it through the redemptive lens, Jesus, the plan of salvation, the atonement, right? All of that, like that is the glasses through which you read the text. It comes to life. It's three-dimensional you find Christ, you find eternal life, right? And this moves your reading of the text away from mere doctrinal and theological knowledge to experiential, life-transforming connection with God. Because the Bible is a book that is alive. It's not an academic book. It's not a textbook. It's not a philosophy book. It's not a doctrinal book. It's not a theological book. It's not a religious book. It is a living book that can transform your life when it points you to Christ. So, another way of looking at this is Scripture points us to Jesus, right? Redemption, the redemptive narrative of Scripture, the redemptive lens. It points us to Jesus, and then Jesus, it feeds back in, points us back to Scripture. And now when we read Scripture, we see Jesus. Jesus leads us back to Scripture, and it's this cycle, beautiful cycle. And the, the Pharisees had this cycle going on. The problem was they had Moses instead of Jesus. They had the law instead of redemption, and that's what led them to have such a dry and, and, and um, dead religion. But when we have Jesus and his redemption as the focal point of scripture, and we read back into scripture, the heart of God in Jesus, in Christ, through those redemptive lenses, it just comes to life. It comes to life, guys. Let me look at my notes here, make sure I'm not um, um, forgetting anything. So this is, this is really key because like I said earlier, there, there are people in church who will they're never, like I said, they're never happy unless the church is focusing on rules and regulations 
and all they want to hear is sermons about the mark of the beast and all they want to hear is about how evil the world is and how everything that everyone is doing is wrong and how we all just need to get our act together right and there's people who love that and honestly if you love that i wonder about your emotional health <laughs> a little bit uh, you know but that's beside the point um there's people who love that and my 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 sort of summary of that is is there a mark of the beast yes there is a mark of the beast is the world bad yes the world is bad um is satan deceiving the nations yes he is is our church itself right is our church our adventist church sometimes itself in bad shape yes absolutely but here's the difference a rules lens a rules lens tells us that the solution to all of these problems is to talk about how bad everything is to compile as many strong quotations as you can and beat people over the head to whip them into shape that's the rules lens whereas the redemptive lens says yes all of this is happening and guess what there is only one solution and it's christ and so when you have this vision that scripture points to jesus and jesus then becomes the lens through which we read scripture what it does is it protects us from false interpretations of scripture it protects us from imbalanced applications it enables us to encounter god in scripture instead of just dry academic ideas propositional ideas it opens to us the depths of god's character it changes our minds to reflect his character and it transforms our lives to live out his character we lose sight of self when we read the bible this way and christ becomes our focus so again and when people talk about all these different things that are happening and they want to focus on it and all that's all they want to talk about you know there's this rules lens that tells you that the solution to all this is you talk about how bad everything is you focus on exposing evil you gather the strongest statements to whip people into shape whereas the redemptive lens says yeah all this is happening but guess what the solution is christ and christ alone and i want to make this very very clear if christ if the gospel if the love of god is not sufficient to change a sinner from his sin nothing will turn the sinner from his sin i want to say that again if the love of god is insufficient to turn a sinner from his sin nothing will turn the sinner from his sin focusing on scary things and trying to freak people out to get them to commit to god no the love is the most powerful force in the universe god is love that that is the most powerful thing that there is if that cannot turn a sinner from his from his course nothing is going to turn him right so focus on the love of god is is the key now i think i just lost my notes here um i ended up scrolling too far oh yeah one more one more statement here the bible is a redemptive story unfolding through the ages with one aim to reveal to us the character of god and jesus as the cornerstone of the universe's ultimate and complete restoration that's what the Bible's doing. That's its divine lens. So let me look at some examples really quickly because I find that sometimes people, this clicks, it connects with people more when I have some examples that they can relate to, all right? So let me just show you a few examples, okay? A health message. What happens with the health message when you look at it from a rules lens versus a redemptive lens? When you look at the health message from a rules lens, you end up with a message like this. Don't eat this, don't eat that, or else that's the rules lens and i actually had a bible study with a guy this week who did not like the health message he was rejecting it he was like no i don't like it you know and here's all the reasons why i disagree with it 
And every reason that he gave is because the people who taught him the health message were using the rules lens and it was awakening his you know, rebellious nature. And so I said to him, look, the health message isn't, isn't about rules. The health message is about God saying, I'm restoring everything back to the original design of love. And I want that restoration to start with you. I want to restore you. I want to restore your life completely, holistically, and fully so that you can experience the joy that I have for you. And when I explained it to him that way, he, I, he, we were on the Bible study on Zoom and he was like, oh, okay, I can do that. I like that, I, I, I'm, I'm totally keen to go with that. Um, so the health message, right? You've got the rules lens versus the redemptive lens. And the rules lens basically is, you know, don't eat this, eat that or else. Uh, the redemptive lens is God wants to restore all things back to the original design and he wants to start with you. He wants to completely restore your life and health so that you can be an inspiration of his love to others. As an example, right? Those are two totally different messages, even though they're rooted in the same details, right? They're, they're both about health. They're both about God's desire for us to live healthy lives. But one is the health message through the lens of rules and the other is the health message through the lens of redemption. And you can see that the message is completely different. Uh, the Sabbath, rules lens versus redemptive lens. The rules lens says, here's the law you're supposed to keep, now keep it, right? The redemptive lens says, God set apart a day as a gift to us to spend time with us and recalibrate us to the rhythm of love. Let's enjoy the gift. It's a completely different message. The mark of the beast, rules lens versus redemptive lens, the rules lens. Make sure you do X, Y, and Z and don't do hashtag insert conspiracy theory here um, or you'll be lost, right? It's the doom and gloom. It's the, the, the frightening, you know, scare people out of their, uh, scare people into obedience message. The redemptive lens is, in the final conflict, God will place his seal upon all who love him and honor him above selfish human empire. The mark of the beast really boils down to this. Who do you love the most? That's the redemptive lens versus the rules lens. So let's go back to Jesus, because I'm going to wrap this up, guys. This, is, this has gone on way longer than I had hoped. After Jesus was done with the Pharisees in John chapter 5, this is the, the chapter that we've been exploring for the last three sermons. Jesus is done with the Pharisees. The story ends. John chapter 6 opens up sometime later. And it tells us a story of when Jesus fed 5,000 people. And then it tells us that these people went looking for Jesus. They went looking for Jesus because they wanted more of the fish and the bread. But they didn't want more of him. And Jesus spotted this and he says to them, you guys are only here because you ate and had your fill. That's what you're really here for. You're not here for me. You're here for more of my stuff. And the tragedy is that so many of us in church are not there for Jesus. We're there for all kinds of other reasons. We're there because we like the ethics of the church or we like the structure or we like the traditions or we like dressing up or we like the songs. We like the rules. We like the sermons on prophecy and how tantalizing and sensational they can be. But we're not there for Jesus. And you know this because when you open the Bible, Jesus isn't what you're looking for. You're looking for bread and fish. You're looking for rules and dogma. You're looking for doctrinal 
trivia and theological knowledge. But you're not looking for Jesus. And Jesus sees right through it. He says to the people, I know exactly why you're here. You're not here for me. You're here because you ate and had your fill. And this is what Jesus says to them. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In other words, hey guys, stop wasting your time chasing the things that don't matter. You should chase the one thing that matters. Me. God has put his seal of approval on me. And so the people ask, what must we do to do the works God requires? Now, this is a question that these people had probably asked many times before to the Pharisees. What must we do to do the works God requires? And they would have been met with a long list of rules. And now they ask Jesus the same question. What must we do, right? What do we have to do to do the works God requires? And here is Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Don't waste your life chasing religion and rules and dogma when you can have something so much better. You can have a private, personal, intimate encounter with Jesus. Every time you open the Bible, you can experience him and you can experience life. Because this is what God asks of you, that you believe in the one he has sent. Now I want to conclude, wrap this up. How do we study the Bible? I want to use this graphic to conclude. Oh, wait. I can't skip this Ellen White quote. This is a good one. As Christ's ambassadors, we are to search the scriptures, to seek for the truths that have been hidden beneath the rubbish of error. Now notice she uses truths, plural. We're to seek those things out. Truths that have been hidden beneath the rubbish of error. Things like the Sabbath, the state of the dead, you know, the judgment, all those things that have been hidden beneath the rubbish of error. And every ray of light received is to be communicated to others. And then she says this, one interest will prevail. One subject will swallow up every other. Christ, our righteousness. He's the center. He's what it's all about. So how do we study the Bible? I'm going to wrap this up now, guys. It's time to end. It's time to end this series. And I hope that as you explore the Sabbath School Quarterly as well, the new Sabbath School Quarterly, you can dig deeper, explore some more. But let's conclude with this. How do we study the Bible? Here's the Bible. Got this line representing the continuity of Scripture's narrative. The Bible is divine. And the Bible is human. It is a human and divine document. And so when God inspires the Bible, he gives thoughts. He imbues the human author with thoughts. And then the human chooses his own words to communicate those thoughts. And those words point toward redemption. They point beyond themselves toward this redemptive theme. Ellen White calls it the golden thread through all the scriptures, the grand golden thread that strings the entire narrative of scripture together. Redemption. And through this redemptive lens, we read the text 
and also through the context of the human author. So we read the text with two things, the redemptive lens of the great controversy narrative and the context of the author and what he intended to portray in the verses that he's writing. And when we do this, when we read scripture through the redemptive lens, we end up at Jesus. And when we explore the context of the human's words, we end up at Jesus. And when we end up at Jesus, we end up with eternal life. We encounter the eternal life that Jesus promises. So a simple way of looking at this is the Bible is a divine plus human document. There is a redemptive lens and there is a context to every passage and chapter that we read. And when we combine the divine intent, that is the redemptive glasses, with the human element, that is the context, the Word of God comes to life. And I want to close with this verse. Oh, wait, sorry. I forgot about this slide. I'm proud of this slide. So let me, and then the, the closing verse is coming up next. The words of Scripture point us to the Word. This is Jesus. He is the Word. He was in the beginning. The words of Scripture point us to Jesus, the Word. They point us to God's character, also revealed in the Word. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And they point us toward the redemptive message of Scripture. All of Scripture is a redemptive message calling us to be restored to God. And so the words point us toward this amazing, holistic, beautiful, unfolding, dynamic narrative. And with that beautiful unfolding dynamic narrative, we go back and we read the words again and they open up even more. This is why the Bible can never be exhausted because the more you see Jesus, you go back, you read again, you see him more, you go back, you read again and it never exhausts itself. So I'm gonna close with this verse, guys. John, 1 John chapter 5, 11 through 13 and this is the testimony of God. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Everything we've been saying is in this text. Jesus is life. Eternal life is in Him. But notice what John says, I have written these things. In other words, the written word is important. Why? Because through the written word, we can believe in the Son of God and know that we have eternal life. The written word and the divine revelation of Jesus. The redemptive theme and the human context. Both of them blend together to point us to eternal life. That's powerful and that's beautiful. And when you read the Bible like that, it comes to life. It transforms who you are. You're never the same again. I've spoken long enough, guys. I'm going to close it there. Um, like I said, this is the last sermon of this series. Hope it made sense. If you have any questions, feel free to message me. I will be putting up an anonymous box on our website that allows you to send in questions. And then I'll weigh up those questions and see which ones are common. And I'll start with those and uh, we'll have fun with it. Let me pray for you guys, and I, pray, I, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of the Sabbath day. Dear God, thank you again for the opportunity we've had to explore 
a very, very deep and very profound theme, a theme of the Bible and how to study the Bible and how to explore the Bible in a way that brings us to Jesus and to life. And my prayer is for every person who has listened to this sermon and also parts one and part two, that they would have a renewed passion, interest, um, and, and desire to be in the Word, especially these days, Lord, as our world falls apart around us. There is one thing that is always sure and always reliable and always unfailing, and that is your word. So may we take the time to spend exploring the word in a way that leads us to your heart, that through your word, Lord, we may encounter Jesus by recognizing and applying the redemptive lens through our reading of scripture and also taking the time to explore the context of the things we're seeing and with those two together, we can derive from the text life for here and life for tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.